Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, we're going to be telling you guys part one of the Golden State Killer. So pour yourself some fire department coffee and let's dive in. So for those of you that don't know, the Golden State Killer was an active killer in California from June of 1976 until about May of 1986. He was known for stalking his victims, and a lot of times he would actually go into their house prior to attacking them, and he would do things like disabling their lights on their porch, unlocking windows, or emptying bullets from the victim's guns. And he would also hide shoelaces under cushions so that he could use them as ligatures during his attack. He would then break into the house of people that were asleep and wear a ski mask. And then he would also have on gloves so that he wouldn't leave any fingerprint evidence behind. And he was known for then waking his victims up by pointing a flashlight in their eyes. And then usually his MO was to attack a couple, so a male and a female. And so he would usually have the woman tie up her partner and then he and then the Golden State Killer would tie her up. And then he'd kind of go about the house and rob them and take things like jewelry, their identification, cash. And and then he would usually take the female to another room to rape her. There were also a lot of accounts where he had taken china dishes and put them on the back of the husband or the the male partner and would tell them would tell him if the dishes fell then he would come back into the room and kill him but he basically just left the man in there while he went and raped the woman in the relationship there's definitely a criminal minds episode about this it sounds so familiar i feel like there is i was thinking the same thing as i was looking more into this i honestly forgot that that was part of the golden state killers mo so and you know with that Let me just kind of preface these two parts by saying this case has so much information and there's so many crimes that are tied to him, potentially tied to him. Maybe it's him, maybe it's not. And there's just a lot of information out there. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard of this and you know this. So we're going to give you um, basically a half in-depth overview of it. Nothing too in-depth because that that could be a whole podcast. So just we just want to let you guys know up front we're not claiming to be saying everything associated with case we're just giving you kind of the pertinent details really also i'm sure you guys could tell but this is a pretty gruesome case as always we don't go into overly extreme details but we are going to go into the details of each of the victims and the way that they were killed or sexually attacked as i stated the golden state killer was active between 1976 and 1986 It is known that between 1976 and 1979, so just a three-year span of time, he did rape an estimated 50 people. And then during his time where he was active, he was known to have murdered murdered 13 people. And the ages of all of his victims were ranged from 13 to 41, and he attacked both male and female. Another thing about the Golden State Killer that was pretty well known was that he would often spend multiple hours in the homes of victims, which is not unlike some of the other killers that we have talked about, but he would take breaks from the assaults and go through their food and eat their eat their food. Um, he would also, obviously, like I'd mentioned before, he would be robbing them of different things, but it never seemed like he took things of like extreme importance. He just, of extreme importance. He just took things that were valuable in the sense of like a personal 
value, not like a financial value. On September 11th, 1975, a 16-year-old girl named Elizabeth Snelling was at her house asleep when she was awakened by an intruder in a ski mask pointing a gun at her head. He told her that he was going to take her with him, and if she made any noises, he was going to kill her. Elizabeth, at this point, was already pretty spooked because this same man had actually been caught looking in her window, her bedroom window, twice. And both times, her father, Claude Snelling, had tried to chase him down, but had never been able to catch this guy. So she knew that this guy had been watching her for some time. So she was obviously pretty freaked out. And luckily, or unluckily, I I guess I don't know, but her dad, Claude, heard everything going on and ended up following them and running after them to save Elizabeth. And the Golden State Killer ended up shooting off two shots and they both hit Elizabeth's dad. And she was just like, she had fallen to the ground because during the altercation and the Golden State Killer turned around and like pointed the gun at her and she thought she was going to get shot. But he ended up kicking her in the face three times and then leaving her alive. I'm guessing the shots were enough for him to be like, oh, someone probably heard that I need to get out. That was probably his thought process. Yeah. I'm guessing she survived from that. She did survive. Yes. Well, physically, at least. I can't even imagine. She was obviously very lucky to have been able to get away from this situation. Um, Her dad did end up dying from this attack. The next murder came in February of 1978. So February 2nd, actually, which was three years after this initial killing. But if you remember, as I'd stated, between 1976 and 1979, it seemed like the main focus of the Golden State Killer was not to murder, but he was looking for for sexual gratification. And so he was raping individuals. But in 1978, he um, he saw Brian and Katie Maggior walking in the Sacramento area. They were out walking their dog. And he approached them and ended up shooting Brian first. And so Katie... So Katie obviously ran away yelling for help, but the Golden State Killer did catch up to her and end up shooting and killing her as well. Police did find shoelaces at the scene tied up like the same ligature that had been used in his rape cases. And this was what was able to connect these two crimes, well, these multiple crimes together. In spring of 1978, Bob and Gay Hardwick were at their home asleep and they ended up waking up in the middle of the night to a bright light shining in their faces. They said it took them a minute um, to figure out what it was, which I think anybody would do. Um, and they ended up realizing that there was an intruder standing above them holding a flashlight at them. Bob Hardwick was tied up by the intruder and left on the bed with a stack of dishes on his back. Once again told, if you move then and you make any noise or drop the dishes, I will come back in here and kill you. And he took Gay Hardwick out into the living room and he repeatedly raped her over the course of multiple hours. Both Gay and Bob did end up surviving this attack, um, obviously with a lot of mental trauma. But they, Gay did end up saying at one point um, during an interview that while the Golden State Killer was at their house and she was tied up on the floor, she said, quote, he ate my... He ate from my refrigerator and he drank two beers while I lay bound and blindfolded. He ransacked our home and in between he tormented me with threats of death, end quote. I really think that points to what kind of person we're dealing with because you have to be truly messed up. And I don't mean like just I'm not going like insanity plea type of thing. Like I just mean a terrible shitty person to be able to do that kind of stuff and then go eat 
and come back and like oh it's just this this person is absolute trash like the epitome of one of the worst of the worst people that's ever existed well it's such an inhumane thing you either have to be able to disassociate yourself or from your emotions or you just have to have no emotions at all yeah and it's clearly not the type of crimes committed by someone who's gonna do like do it once or twice and move on like it's gonna be a repeated offense absolutely well at this point i mean we're already looking at the murder of the couple brian and katie and the father claude and then 50 plus rapes at this point and now he's also raped the wife right and it's i mean it's good to point out that like there's probably so many people who were attacked by this person and did not come forward because of how rape was stigmatized at the time. Um, there wasn't really a whole lot of repercussions for people who did it. And women, I mean, still today, but even back when this was happening, women were almost shamed for it. Yeah, it's very sad to see the way that this was handled at this time um, and the way that it can still be handled to this day. So Bob and Gay Hardwick were lucky enough to survive this attack, but they were one of the few after he had officially started killing to be able to survive the attack. In October of 1979, um, specifically October 1st, in Goleta, Santa Barbara, there was a couple asleep in their home, and around 2.20 in the morning, they end up waking up to an intruder being in their house. Um, now, this couple's names have not been released to what I could find, but they were bound at the wrists and ankles, and the woman heard the attacker in the kitchen, like, rummaging through things. And he kept saying, I'll kill him, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. And while he was in the kitchen, the woman was able to get her wrists and ankles untied to get the ligatures off. And they, she was able to help the, the man as well. And they both took off. She was able to make it out the front door. But and the, her significant other went out the back door and both of them were able to make it out alive. This attack, however, is the last known attack of the Golden State Killer where there were any survivors. The next killing was on December 30th, 1979. And this was Deborah Manning and Robert Offerman. On December 30th, 1979, Deborah Manning and Robert Offerman were killed in Goleta near Santa Barbara. And they had been shot to death Um this was also another attack where the Golden State Killer had gone into their fridge and ate their food. He supposedly ate the leftovers that they had from Christmas is what was documented. They did find nylon twine and tennis shoe impressions at the crime scene, which were able to link the Golden State Killer to this specific killing as well. The next attack was in March of 1980. Lyman and Charlene Smith were murdered in their house in Ventura. Um, this was another situation where Charlene had been bound and raped. I did not see if Lyman, um, if the, the china dishes had been used in this murder itself. Unfortunately, the couple was discovered by Lyman's 12-year-old son later that day. So the son wasn't home when this happened? I I honestly didn't find whether or not... So I know that they had two kids. They had an 18-year-old... Well, Lyman had an 18-year-old daughter at this time. And... So I, I don't know if neither of them were home at the time of the I would, attack. I mean, I would guess not. That would be my assumption. I feel like something like we, you know, you'd wake up to. So I don't know. In August of 1980, Keith and Patrice Harrington were also murdered in their home in Dana Point, California. At the time of the murder, Keith was a med student and Patrice was a pediatric nurse. They had been married for only three months at the time of their murder. They, uh, the couple was found dead two days later by Keith's father. On February 
1981, 28-year-old Manuela Whithun was attacked in her home. She was bound, raped, and bludgeoned to death. She was married at the time of her attack. However, her husband was actually very ill at the time of the attack. And so he was staying in the hospital. So he was not home during the time of the murder. He did talk about later how he, you know, had guilt in relation to not being home, but also assumed that if he had been home, he would have been a victim of the attack as well, which is normal for any sort of survivor. There's a whole term, you know, it's called survivor's guilt, which obviously is not his fault, but it just made me really sad. When I, you know, just thinking about like how much it would go through your head, like, well, maybe I could have been there and done something. It could have turned out different, but also he probably would have died. That's very accurate. It's that would that would be a hard one. Um, not that any of these are easy, but that's that's rough. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Yeah, he um, actually ended up dying not too long after the murder. I don't, I didn't see why he died or how he died. It was, it was years after I know that. But Manuela's body was found later by her mother. In July of 1981, 27-year-old Sherry Domingo and 35-year-old Gregory Sanchez were killed at their home in Galetta. Gregory had been shot and beaten to death, but uh, beaten to death by having been bludgeoned in the head two dozen times. And uh, and Sherry had been raped and had also been beaten in the head more than 10 times. So at this point, like, I feel like we're seeing an escalation as these go on, which I think points even more to the fact that he probably had at least sexually assaulted so many more people before these even started happening. Yeah. Um, you know, there was the accounts of the 50 rapes and then he, he went from raping people to raping and shooting them and then raping and beating them to death. And so, yes, we are absolutely seeing an escalation. I think at this point, we're also seeing a sense of arrogance. You know, he's gotten away with, at this point, 12 murders. He's not been caught and he's gotten away with 50 rapes and all of the break-ins and just everything. And so I think at this point, he's kind of living on this high that I'll never be caught. I can just keep killing kind of thing. With that, there were, you know, a lot of phone calls that came in claiming to be this culprit. Um... I think there were over 10 some of them were caught on tape three of them and they were kind of pointing to that arrogance like you're never going to catch me i'm the golden state killer or i'm whatever killer because there were different nicknames depending on the area and they're just like you're not going to find me i'm going to do this again and i think that does point to that kind of arrogance that this person had he ends up actually taking a break um from ne- july of 1981 until may of 1986 and Obviously, I say that he took a break in the sense that we have no idea, like there's no known killings or rapes or anything connected to him during this five year time period. That doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't. It just means that nothing was connected. The next killing was in May of 1986. Um, 18 year old Janelle Cruz was killed. Um, She was bound, raped and bludgeoned in the face and in her head. Um, Once again, she was killed at her house. 
this is the last known crime of the Golden State Killer. So we see all this escalation from 1976 until 1981. And then he takes five years off, which could potentially be a jail sentencing or... I doubt that this guy was feeling some sort of remorse at this time. I, I don't know what else it could have been. And th- I, I mean, I, there's probably something else other than a jail sentencing from what we know more about his identity and things. Um, but it's weird to me that he took five years off. So for me, like, I think my guess is that he probably went somewhere else and did something. And then the crimes were just not connected. Uh, a big part of this case that we'll discuss a little bit more in part two is that he was moving around enough, which you guys have probably gathered just from what we've said so far, that jurisdictions really were having a hard time connecting them all together. Um, a lot of it came from DNA connections that was left at the scene or on the peoples who were attacked. So yeah, like I said, um, and like Abby said, there is no other known crimes of him. However, that doesn't mean that there were no more crimes from the same man. Like Abby said, it was hard for the jurisdictions to really know They didn't really communicate. So it was hard to pinpoint him because he was moving all around. But he, there were multiple nicknames that kind of came up um, for this individual. So the, uh, a couple of the nicknames were the East Area Rapist, the Visalia Ransacker, the Diamond Knot Killer, and also the original Night Stalker. So if you guys are familiar with the Night Stalker, the person that currently holds that name, um, that's Richard Ramirez. And he acted in California um, around the same time as the Golden State Killer. His crimes were more in the 80s um, than in the 70s. But police for a while thought that the Night Stalker, who is Richard Ramirez, and the Golden State Killer were possibly the same person. But they ended up being able to test DNA that had been found at the different different crime scenes. And they were able to realize that the East Area Rapist, the Night Stalker, the original Night Stalker, the Visalia Ransacker, and the Diamond Knot Killer were all the same person. And they ended up giving him the name the Golden State Killer. And this actually, this Golden State Killer term was coined by Michelle McNamara. Um, She was investigating the case, an investigative journalist basically, looking into it. And was trying to figure out who it was and connect the crimes. Unfortunately, she did pass away before they actually came back with the DNA and who it actually was, which we'll get into in part two, which I'm sure you guys have heard of if you've heard of the Golden State Killer. But just a little known fact about her, at least little known in the sense I didn't know. She was actually married to comedian and actor Patton Oswalt. Um, his name doesn't sound, well, it didn't sound super familiar to me, but as soon as I Googled him and looked at who he was, I was like, oh yeah. So that's just a little fun fact for you guys. But yeah, she was the one who coined the nickname, the Golden State Killer, which ultimately is the name that is used to describe this assailant. So after the murder in 1986, uh, the case kind of, it didn't necessarily go cold. The police were still looking for the killer, but they didn't have anything new to go off of. So at this point had a description of the man that they were looking for. And pretty much they just had to investigate with all the evidence they already had. So the description was a white male around six foot tall with an athletic build and either blonde or light brown hair. He was proficient with guns. And so they believed that he possibly had military training or some sort of interest in the techniques that law enforcement uses. And that was pretty much all they had to go off of. For 30 years, nothing really came about. And then in June of 2016, the FBI held a press conference announcing a $50,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the Golden State Killer. 
that does it for part one of our episode on the Golden State Killer. Please come back for part two, which will release a week from the day we're releasing this one. And you can find out the rest of the story and how this case unfolds. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.